Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. And I have an excellent show for you this week. I'm going to talk to contributor Robert Dean, Bobby Hilliard, about the new Artificial Intelligence George Carlin YouTube special that has been generating a lot of controversy on the internet, and it is generating some controversy on our show as well, and uh, Bobby and I will be talking about that in a little bit. I'm also going to talk to Scott Gold, frequent contributor and frequent guest, about the new Marvel Cinematic Universe Disney Plus show Echo, which is now airing, as I said, on Disney Plus. But first, Rebecca Kirsten is here to talk to me about the absolute masterwork, The Zone of Interest, a new Holocaust movie from director Jonathan Glazer that is unlike anything you'll see this year or any other year. What a movie and uh, really chilling and really important. And Becky will be here to talk with me about it in just a minute. Our movie of the week, and perhaps the movie of the year, or of the last couple of years, is The Zone of Interest, a new film from director Jonathan Glazer based on a 2014 novel by Martin Amos. It is essentially, uh, it is the distillation of uh, philosopher Hannah Arendt's um, idea of the banality of evil as it relates to the Holocaust, kind of put on the screen. It's a story of the uh, family life of the commandant of Auschwitz, sort of right on the edge of Hitler's final solution. And while it doesn't sound like fun to watch, and it's not exactly fun to watch, it is a brilliant and chilling film. And I have Rebecca Curson, our Book and Film Globe contributor, who is uh, who went to see the movie today as we're talking and has agreed to talk with me about it. And hello, Rebecca. Hi. Hi. Yeah. So um, you mentioned real briefly while we were talking that you loved the film. I mean, there's it's, it's really an incredible piece of work. It was um, a masterpiece, if, if I can be so bold. Um, yeah. I came early and I, I wasn't sure whether there'd be anybody there. For a while, it was just me and the, um, a mouse actually running around through the theater, which was kind of a little bit creepy. Um, eventually, a few people trickled in and it was absolutely silent. You could hear a pin drop. And I walked out of there feeling um it was almost bizarre to walk out into Times Square because you weren't even sure am I in 1943 or where am I like what year is this um in the movie it ends with the the, we're basically talking about the Jews of of Hungary which happens to be where my family's from being liquidated uh, which is I think 44 actually and here we are and I walked out and I I I was I was shattered yeah, it, it is shattering. Although, you know, it, what's interesting about the movie is that it they don't actually show the extermination of the Jews. Never. You don't you don't you see maybe a you see a couple of Jewish, I guess, slaves for the commandant and his family working in the garden 
people you know walking around with the their yellow star patches but you don't really you don't really see the Jews this is a movie told this is a movie from the point of view of the people who perpetuated the Holocaust and it's and you don't they're not even like these sort of you know mustache twirling jackbooted Nazis that we've seen in other Holocaust movies uh you know like Schindler's List or The Pianist or even uh Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards these are like boring suburbanites who the commandant and his family are living in this it's not a mansion but it's a nice you know upper middle class house that just happens to be literally over the wall from Auschwitz uh, you get uh, the family is used to the sound to hear gunshots all day long you hear horrible yelling and screaming um agonized screams at times and they don't even notice it their grandmother comes to visit and she is shaken she ends up leaving yeah and she leaves and she leaves a note for uh, the wife of the family who immediately throws it in the furnace, which is a great metaphor. <laughs> yeah, she's no interest in, and she's like, oh, she's just so weak. Um, she doesn't understand what we're building here. At least that's what I got from the note. But there was just a couple little chilling moments. Like they've obviously, they're, they're taking great pleasure in passing out the Jewish clothing to the maids in the house. The, the wife takes a fur coat for herself and is delighted to find a lipstick in the pocket. I don't want to give away all the wonderful details, but you never really know what's over the wall, except occasionally there's ashes and there's always a fire burning in the chimney. Yeah, there's like a, fur- a furnace. Yes, and clearly they're using the ashes in the garden. Yeah, to fertilize their vegetables. They are. They are using it that way. And then I don't know quite what to make of the end, but it was. It was, uh, I'll be thinking about that for the rest of my, of the year, really, where Hess looks at the camera. Yeah, he looks at the camera, like. He looks at us, watching him. Well, he basically just shrugs, like, well, that's what I did. It's just so chilling, and and yet, like, Jonathan Glazer, who, who made this film, um, you know, has a, kind of a short filmography. He's only made three or four movies. Um, the, I've, I've seen two of the other ones. One was Sexy Beast, which is a, you know, fun kind of British crime uh, film starring Ben Kingsley. That was That's all more than 20 years old. And then Under the Skin, which is a kinda, phenomenal movie, though. Phenomenal. Sexy Beast is great, and so is Under the Skin, which is like a kind of a creepy alien movie uh, starring Scarlett Johansson. But, you know, not they're both good, really good. But nothing could prepare you for, for this. I mean, this is, like, this is just a, such an inspired work. And, you know, it's basically like a two... There are a lot of actors... There are a lot of characters in the movie, but it's basically a two-character movie. You have Rudolph Haas played by Kristen Friedrich, who is the, the commandant, and then Sandra Huller, who we recently saw in Anatomy of the of uh, Fall, um, who plays plays his wife. I couldn't decide which one of them was more evil. I, it's, it's, you're left really without knowing. He is, in some ways, a better parent and uh, a, a, like a more loving parent. Like there, um, Sort of a running motif in the movie is that the baby cries almost nonstop, and she never ever seems to pick it up to comfort it. And there's this dog begging for attention throughout, which it never receives. And it, it, there's some, she's an incredibly cold, cold person. And she fights to keep her home at Auschwitz because it's, it's her dream come true. Well, and there's this, um, there's this amazing detail where her, when her mother comes to visit, she mentions that she was a, um, how she put it, she was like a charwoman for like a Jewish family. So obviously um, Hedwig, which is Sandra Huller's character's name, was like a working class German girl who um, made good 
she married the uh, the guy who like advanced in the Nazi hierarchy, and this is like she's like uh, just literally building her her dream house on the bones of millions of Jews. It's it's just it's a terrifying thought that that there are people who you know it shows you there are people who benefited from the Holocaust materially. Well, they they have like it's a throwaway line about everyone's coming here to work for Siemens, this new factory. And Haas was like, yes, yes, there's, you know, there's a lot of new business here. Um, it, that was a very chilling moment. There's a lot of people who are benefiting. Who are making money. And, and you forget, like, oh, yeah, that's right. The, I mean, yes, obviously the Holocaust was evil and, and what Germany was doing was evil. But they were also in business. They were in the business of killing Jews. Like, it is a profitable business for people. Yes, and I, it amazed me how much of the movie was about uh, phone calls, letters, and business meetings. Yeah, it's an amazing, uh, you know, and you have to, a, a lot of credit goes to Martin Amos, uh, who wrote the the, novel, the source material that this this uh, movie was based on, um, you know, just to, like, present the Holocaust in this way. It's just nothing you've ever seen before. I mean, compare this to, like, Schindler's List, which is obviously, like, a legendary film and a great film, but that movie was so um, overwrought and melodramatic, and there was hope. There was hope that they saved some Jews, but like no one's getting saved in in the zone of interest. Oh my God, no! He, it would never have occurred to anybody there. They they loved it. Um, I think they were probably thinking, you know, once once we're done with Hungary, then what's next? You know, we how can we expand our operations? Yeah, again, because it's a very profitable and yeah. So you know, it's a uh, obviously the story. The story is appalling, but just as a film, I mean. This movie, there, it's like it's just impeccable. Every shot is perfect. Mm-hmm. Every decision is perfect. The sound, it's interesting you saw it in a silent theater because the soundscape is is amazing. It was incredible. You know, the discordant music, the the sort of the the ambient noise that the, the um, family experiences. Like there's there's like not a not a wasted detail. And, it, you know, it just really... Um, <laughs> It, it just puts a lot of other films that you see to shame. Like there's not even, it, it almost feels like there's no tricks. It just feels incredible, naturalistic. Yet it's yet there's just a lot of, but there's just a lot of technique put into it as well. The only even fair nod towards like modern special effects, I guess, would be there's a few very strange dreams that one of their daughter has, and um, you're not quite sure what to make of them. And they're filmed in um, kind of an odd way. And that's the only thing at all that even would resemble a modern movie. Everything else looked and felt exactly as if we were watching a documentary about kind of just daily life, kind of, and almost at times dull, you know, just, just sort of little household crises, you know, a puddle that needs to be mopped up, just little small things. Yeah, kid, kids getting into little tiffs. Yeah. Exactly, and and you want to read it as as sadistic, the little fight between the brothers. But that's a pretty normal fight between brothers. They're just living their normal life. Pretty normal. The the, the kid fussing in the bath because he doesn't want to get the ashes of the dead Jews washed out of his hair. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, just unbe- unbelievable. There's just a lot of unbelievable stuff in this film. I you know, I mean, I I couldn't recommend this movie more highly. It's just it's just an incredible film. I would agree. And there's a few things that I found myself. So as I was driving home, I'm like, I have to look up a few things. Certainly, I'm going to read the novel, which I had not read. But I want to know, Hess writes this bizarre memo about people picking lilacs in a way that he finds to be very cool to the tree. I want to know if that's real. 
I, I have to know. I don't know, but I, I, I looked up Rudolf Haas after the movie, and uh, he, I mean, he was the commandant of Auschwitz, and yes, he was. I, I mean, you look at a photo of him, he looks like the actor who played him, like the, down to that stupid haircut. It's a bizarre <laughs> haircut now, uh, but yes, and it, that's, he, had, he did have five kids, they're all named exactly as they were in life. He knew his wife since uh, they were teens. The whole thing is exactly as it is in the movie. They're like uh, they're like the evil Von Trapp family. <laughs> Essentially, but this this was their big goal, and they did in fact. Uh, I, I I did look it up to find out well what happens to him. He pretends to be a gardener after the war, and his wife finally turns them in. Uh, so who knows why? Yeah, probably to save her own ass. That's all she seems. That's all she cares about. Yeah, really. At the end of the day, wow. All right. Well, what? What? You know, maybe maybe we'll get the zone of interest too. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. But I will say that the last fifteen or so minutes of the movie were about the the strangest and most profound things I've seen in years. Incredible. Yeah, I mean, whatever. I'll give it away. There's no, there's no plots. There's no spoilers here. The Hol- we all know what happened in the Holocaust. The 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 at the end, they just they cut to literally documentary scene footage of contemporary workers cleaning the Holocaust Museum at Auschwitz. And it's so bizarre. But that's what that's what really got me. That's what actually brought tears to my eyes because you actually see yeah. like, oh, this is this is what all of Rudolf Haas's hard work led to, like. Yes. Thousands of discarded valises and all these children's shoes. Um, I happened to be in Israel over uh, the December uh, break um, and uh, the vacation, and I saw a Nova exposition, uh, uh, an exhibit of the Nova Music Festival, and they've done something similar where they have tables of shoes, and it's it's exactly the same. Everybody there. Well, that's interesting that you should say that because we've talked about this on the show before too about you know about the way that you know Western culture and 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 Hollywood and and writers have responded to the horrors of October seventh. You know, unless you think the Holocaust or things like it couldn't happen again to Jews, you know, it, there, there was something on a much smaller scale that happened uh, within the last year, and so you know. You know, and there are definitely people in many countries who have pro- who are profiting from that as well. So there's still a lot of relevance um, to what we're seeing in the zone of interest, which is why the movie feels so chilling and current. Yes, it was beyond belief to see that just weeks after I had seen Kyle's uh, a much more modern shoes, shoes that my my daughters have. It was in, it was it was a very upsetting moment. Yeah, I'm sure. All right, well. Um, Thank you uh, for uh, g- sitting through the movie after the, after a, a real life uh, experience. Um, I've never been to Israel. I mean, I, I, I know I need to get there. <laughs> it's time. Okay. Rebecca Kirsten, thank you so much. Zone of Interest is in theaters now. It will be on some sort of streaming at some point. Uh, it gets Book and Film Globe's highest recommendation. 20 out of 10 stars. Maya, I see everything that you are. You and I are the same. I taught you everything. Don't be afraid. I was there for you! Still a chance for you to get out of this alive. What did you do? The Marvel Cinematic and Television Universe is back again, and Scott Gold is back again with me today to talk about the latest developments in the MCU. Hello, Scott. 
Hey, Neil, great to be back. Hello. So our current Marvel product is Echo, uh, which is a, a TV series on Disney+, Plus, but it's not really a, a Disney show, let's say. It's a, the first Marvel spotlight show, and uh, it's got uh, a lot of violence, like violence, blood, like the, uh, the street-level Marvel shows that they had on Netflix a few years ago. And it, it is, in fact, a spinoff in some ways of those. Yeah, uh, it's the first Marvel show on Disney that kind of harks, harks back, like you said, to those the wonderful heyday of violent Marvel television shows like Daredevil and Punisher. And, uh, you know, we have Echo, clearly, obviously, the uh, the heroine here, or anti-hero, if you will. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's it's a little bit of a departure for a, like, for a number of reasons from previous Disney MCU TV outings or streaming outings, I should say. Uh, and, you know, the violence is, is definitely the first one. And honestly, I'm here for it. I'm a huge, huge Daredevil fan. And I'm really looking forward to, you know, the big new Daredevil show coming up. But in the meantime, we have Echo. And there are, uh, you know, some bits and pieces of what we loved about uh, those other shows on the other streaming service. Some Echoes, if you will. Yeah, there's violent. But, you know, what's interesting is, is that it is a sequel to Daredevil, but it's also a sequel to Hawkeye, which was a Disney plus Marvel Christmas show. Right. So so it's kind of a hybrid, right? Because that's Echo was introduced. She is a henchwoman, hench person of the Kingpin, and she is deaf and she has a prosthetic leg and she's played by Alakwa Cox, who is uh, a Native American who is deaf and who has a prosthetic leg, uh, very, which is... Uh, I don't, it must have been hard for them to find a good actor for this, but... <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, that casting must have been really, really tricky. Yeah, and you know, here's the thing about Alakwa Cox. She looks the part, and I think she handles the fight scenes very well. I, I don't really think she's a particularly good actor. There's a lot of glowering. Just a lot of glower. She just she has a glower <laughs> pretty much in every scene. Oh, yeah. It's 95% glowering. You know, there's a point in episode four when she's talking to her grandfather, and she smiles... I was actually surprised that she was even capable of of any emotion other than just a full full glower. I mean, she's a troubled person. You know, this is someone who was uh, caught up in some gangland violence and then became uh, essentially the ward of the most evil man in New York City, uh, the Kingpin, who's played by uh, just like he was in Daredevil and some of the other Marvel shows by uh, Vincent uh, Philip D'Onofrio. Boy, he is. She she might not be able to act very well, but he could. He outacts everybody in every scene he's in. Oh, yeah, he's brilliant. And it's really wonderful to see him in this character again, to really inhabit it. You can tell it's a character that he really, really digs into. And, you know, he's always been kind of a a method kind of deep dive actor ever since Full Metal Jacket. And, you know, he was in TV for a long time on the Law and Order series. But it's great to see him fully inhabit a role in a way that feels so real to fans of the comics. Like he feels like a pitch perfect adaptation in live action of what that character is across all media. Cause he's appeared in, you know, animated movies like the spider verse movies and he's in the video games. And, you know, we see a, a lot of di- kingpin across a lot of different media. And uh, I think Vincent really, really nails it. And sp- like, you can really sense like his inner conflict and his troubled nature. And, you know, he wants to make New York city, you know, clean and pristine and, and 
good again, but like like Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit, but a lot larger and a lot more violent. Uh, personally speaking, like, he is he is not afraid to get his hands wet. Uh, and when I say get his hands wet, it's with bright red blood, which is literally something that happens in the show right in front of yeah the goriest scene. The goriest scene occurs in a flashback where he has baby Maya, you know, in his charge and he beats the absolute shit out of an ice cream vendor who makes fun of her because she's deaf. I mean, he turns him into, into meat, you know, and, and that is not something you'd expect to see on Disney. So yeah. So <laughs> Vincent, so and there's a lot of him in the show. There's a couple episodes that don't have Vincent D'Onofrio in it, but there's a lot of him and he, he's, you know, it, it really gives the show some heft. I also found uh, a lot of the other, a lot of the supporting actors were very good. Uh, Tantu Cardinal, who's in Killers of the Flower Moon, and Graham Greene, the veteran Native American actor, who I think has been in, uh, playing Native Americans in movies since before I was born, uh, play her grandparents, Echo's grandparents, and they're both excellent. And I also loved uh, the actor who played her uncle, Henry. Uh, he, I thought he was really magnetic. Uh, he was the lead in uh, a show called The English, uh, which was a Western starring Emily Blunt that that was little seen on Amazon Prime. And he was extremely magnetic in that. Yeah, he's great. And also a bit of a, you know, a Southern, little bit of a Southern drawl, which I think is great. Like he, you really feel like he didn't like, they didn't find a, a Native American actor living in California and just like have him pretend to be from Oklahoma. Or maybe he is, I don't know, but his accent, his, you know, little bit of a Southern accent was really, really spot on. He's also a very charismatic guy. The only problem is, we did not get enough of him. Like we only got a little bit of uncle Henry. And the problem with a lot of this is that it was only five episodes, which is sure. not a lot of time to really get to know some of these characters. It's basically a movie. It's basically a movie. It's, it's approximately an hour and 50, an hour and 60 minutes long. So it's short. It's, it's truncated. Uh, and there's also some differences between echo in the show and echo in the comics, you know, in the comics, she has this cool white, um, hand painted on her face as part of her costume and she is deaf but her powers are, are involved they're kind of like a, the ver a version of daredevil's powers his, his senses are heightened because he's blind her senses are heightened because she's deaf so she can mimic echo anybody's physical abilities and that so she be she, in addition to becoming one of the world's greatest fighters she's also a, a master concert pianist even though she's deaf. Which is, uh, you know, really interesting that they had to, you know, Marvel had to pivot on this one because the the superpower of being able to, you know, see someone fight once and then fight exactly like them or to do anything that you witness someone else doing is something that they already attributed to another bad guy in the MCU, Taskmaster. So they had to pivot and give Maya Lopez kind of new powers, which are all generationally connected to her ancestors, which makes a lot of sense given, you know, the whole Native American background. And I think they explored that really well. I thought the flashback scenes to, you know, early Choctaw culture uh, and myth were were really, first of all, they were beautifully shot and uh, the costumes and the makeup were, were really, really cool. And uh, it was really neat to see. But um, when I'm I'm looking at it at the end of the day after witnessing the entire series, you know, the superpowers of your of your ancestors, it's just it doesn't hit as hard for some reason to me. It's kind of corny. Yeah. It's kind of cor I agree with you. I like this. There is a sort of the uh, the ball scene set in like the 12th century. Then there is the sort of cool old newsreel movie, silent movie style of the of the late 1800s. 
Um, but yeah, it, it's corny, right? It's, she like call. She has these glowing hands, and she calls upon the powers of her ancestors. And I will say that the final fight scene, where she finally powers up, you know, a la an anime character, um, you know, it's kind of truncated. And you don't really see a lot of it, and they, 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 I feel like they don't. I don't feel like it really stuck. Even though I felt like uh, Maya's emotional arc was complete, I don't feel like it really stuck the landing. Yeah, I completely agree. Like we're we're led to believe like she is just such a badass and an amazing fighter. And at the end, and spoiler alert for anybody who's listening to this who hasn't seen the full five episode arc yet, uh, and it comes out and that her superpower is taking pain away from Kingpin. Like that's <laughs> right after after she's killed hundreds of people on his behalf. Like after she's mur- just murdered so many people and. It didn't sit right. Well, again, like the show, especially the final, it, it went from being this like street level gore fest, a la The Punisher, to being this kind of soft, mushy, we are all connected Disney thing, like almost like Encanto, you know? Yeah. I almost expected her and her grandma to live in some magical casita at the end. They kind of do, you know? <laughs> so, so, so it's kind of weird in that way. So it's got this like, uh, it's got this like dual identity given that it is a superhero show. But, you know, it's like, is it street-level violence or is it, like, mushy, soft, sort of, like, mediocre (laughs) healing power show? Yeah, I was in it for the violence, honestly. Like, that's totally what I want to watch when I... When you see a a, a show featuring... Daredevil shows up in the first episode and that fight scene with him is terrific. Oh, we got so teased. And that whole scene, by the way, I just... Out of everything I got out of the show, that one-shot long one-shot fight scene and we've seen very similar things in almost every season of daredevil kind of the hallmark of that kind of corner of the mcu uh it's just the fight choreography was so cool and it was brilliantly shot and uh really effective you talked about maya smiling the first time i remember seeing her smile is when she realizes she has the opportunity to completely beat the snot out of uh, out of a henchman who uh, felt her up on her way in to uh, to make this deal gone bad. Oh. Yeah, I, I I left I left that moment behind because I was I was so caught up in the saga of her wacky cousin biscuits. You know, I love biscuits. I wanted more <laughs> biscuits. Please give me more biscuits. <laughs> there there's there's the foundation for something good in Echo. I I, I do feel like it's it it was not the same show at the end that it was at the beginning. Yeah, it was a little schizophrenic, um, but ultimately, you know, it was it was pretty good. I watched I didn't stop watching it like, uh, you know, like Secret Invasion or it was short enough. It was short enough. It wasn't like 10 episodes, you know, uh, so you there wasn't there wasn't it wasn't really skippable. You, you could get to the end without too much suffering. I don't know. It's, it's just Marvel's having some consistency and tone problems these days, you know, as we've talked about before. Parts of their products are good. Parts of them are you know, kind of meh. You know, the the level of performance and commitment is, you know, varies from actor to actor, from project to project. The hand on the tiller is not as strong as it was, say, 10 years ago. Yeah, completely agreed. Maybe they're spreading themselves thin. Maybe the studios, uh, you know, not giving their creators enough, you know, space to work or they're giving them too many notes. I don't know what's going on, but the result is that, you know, they're not, uh, you know, they're not hitting quite as hard as they used to, but it's still usually fairly entertaining, uh, certainly above, you know, network sitcoms for sure. But 
yeah. At this, at this point, you know, our bar is really high, especially after all the Marvel movies. Um, some people are burning out on it. Yeah, I've been because re- I've been I've been reading um, the history of the MCU that just came out, you're written co-written by Joanna Robinson and some other entertainment journalists. And you know, when you read about like the care and the the detail that they put into those early projects, you know, uh, through th- up through Phase Two, it, it makes you realize so- something definitely. Um, went a little bit off the rails. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, well, regardless, Echo is on Disney+. Plus. It is uh, one of many con- current uh, contemporary shows and movies featuring Native Americans from Oklahoma. There's, there's a kind of uh, a chic, a little trend of that, and this is the Disney version of it. And, uh, you know, Scott and I, I guess we recommend it, right? I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty good show. I'm glad I saw it. Now I have, you know, for my trivia competitions, I have a bunch of Echo facts in my head which I didn't have before. So it's somewhat valuable in that sense. All right, Scott, we'll talk to you soon. All right, thanks a lot, Neil. George Carlin is back, which is pretty strange since he's been dead for more than a decade. But uh, artificial intelligence has resuscitated the work of George Carlin. There's a new... AI George Carlin special that you can watch on YouTube and it is strange and creepy and responses have mostly been negative, but they've been varied as well. And we have a response on book and film globe to AI George Carlin written by our uh, stand-up comedy correspondent of sorts. Uh, Robert Dean, Bobby Hilliard is here today to talk to me about AI George Carlin. Hello. Howdy. Uh, you're a, obviously like, like me, you, you know, loved, uh, in some ways, worship uh, the work of George Carlin, who I, I consider to be the greatest stand-up comedian of all time, um, if not maybe not the greatest, but if one of the one of the two or three greatest. And you know, you you felt like this this AI George Carlin was a total debasement of of his legacy and his memory. I'm not on board with the AI, AI thing at all, like at all. I, I there are things it does well, like yeah. Does do I use a grammar checker? I do, but. I'm just not on board with this AI thing with art and music and like trying to bastardize the creative process. I think that Dudesy, the parent company behind it, I just think that this was like a super gross like marketing t- thing to be like, check out our podcast and check out the art that we did. And they picked because they did one with Tom Brady and Tom Brady was like our, immediately gave him a cease and desist. And the family of George Carlin, his daughter was like, absolutely the fuck not. I don't know if they issued a cease and desist on it, but more or less, it's just like, it's just gross. It, I will agree with you that it is gross What as a marketing tool. And I find that company and that podcast dudesy to be extremely annoying and offensive and pretentious isn't really the right word, but they just suck. Trying, trying to like make your reputation based on a computer generated version of a far superior comedian's work is just incredibly crass and, and, and not, not cool at all. So that said, I listened to the George Carlin AI special. And while it was derivative of George Carlin, it was kind of eerily accurate in a lot of ways. And I know you don't agree with me, but I, I really like, I don't know if I found myself laughing a lot, but I was like, wow, that is, that, that is, very, very close to like what George Carlin would have said about Donald Trump or about, you know, certain trends in our culture or about AI itself. 
I don't think so. I think it's like a really surface level pandering of what he would have thought. Because the thing about Carlin is, yes, he pointed out the obvious and made it palatable in a way that people could laugh at it. But also, there's just stuff that I think when it comes to Donald Trump and AI, because I wrote that article a while back of like, well, what George Carlin think about this? I don't know. It's just his mind worked in such a way that I think it's a total bastardization. It's like me trying to write George Carlin's jokes. Like you just, our minds aren't capable of what he thought about culture, people in the world. But you know, I don't, I, okay, sure. But I do feel like, you know, the way, you know, with the thing that Carlin hated um, authority, he hated the system toward the end of his life. He, he was really like convinced that, you know, the elites were working against us in every possible way. And yeah, this AI doesn't go that deep, but he also had this incredible disdain for like, you know, Yahoo mall going fast food stuffing, greedy Americans. And that is, that was a constant theme in his work. Early on. Yeah. I think the, like in the seventies and eighties, cause he has basically two eras. You have the hippy dippy seventies version where he's like the, te- the the words you can't say on television, all that stuff. Like he evolved from the hippy dippy comic, who was pretty much like a Lenny Bruce copy into the thought provoking guy of the seventies when he did lambast fast food culture and all that. And then once he got towards it's bad for you or the later ones, it like even the one where he was live and they had like a stream like live to some bar in Jersey. Those ones, he was definitely more on the side of, you know, you're being fucked from every angle, and he was more of a statistician of the culture around us. Did he talk shit? Yeah. I mean, he was the same guy who said, how's the blues? White people give people the blues. Right. I mean, he was a populist, but he definitely, like, he wasn't, I I wouldn't consider him politically to be, to be really, like, a, a doctrinaire lefty either, you know? So, I, I don't know. I mean, look, again, the AI version of George Carlin does not, again, have the depth and and perspective uh, that Carlin did. I, again, I just felt like it was close enough for me. I know you disagree. I, 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 I and, and I'm not even saying that it's a good thing that it exists because it's not. But I, I just felt like it was it was kind of eerily close. I think it did the best it could with the technology provided because AI is this continually learning thing. I want nothing to do with AI. I don't want, because I've had people that are like, oh, well, we use AI to help fix books or whatever. I'm like, I don't want that. I want humans to do every facet of the, if I'm involved from a cover to a book for whatever to an article, anything, I do not want anything to do with AI. I think it's fucking gross and it's killing the middle class. I don't know. I don't know if it's true. I mean, I, I do. Am I welcoming it with open arms? No. Am I, you know, am I shutting it out completely? I'm not. I mean, there's just like, there's not much we can do to stop it. Unfortunately, no, because like I said, it's killing the middle class. Like AI is ruining. I mean, you can go down an entire political rabbit hole, cultural one about in the next 10 years, I don't think most jobs are going to exist. I just think the creatives are the one that's feeling it first. I honestly don't think that doctors are going to exist in 20 years. I don't even think it's going to take 20 years for there not to be doctors anymore. I I, I don't know if that's true or not. All I know is that, uh, you know, this George Carlin thing I feel like is important because I feel like it's an early litmus test uh, about the sort of uh, the scope and, and also the limits of AI. Like this, this is like 
to me, very close to something, you know, there, there've been, I feel like there's been some AI generated music. You've seen those, the songs, the videos and all that. I don't feel like that really has gotten at it as, as much as this did. Like, I feel like this George Carlin fake concert with the eerie fake audience and the fake laughs uh, is, is an early sign of what is to come in entertainment. Totally. Like Rogan was talking one time. He's like, dude, the AI stuff is weird because they'll do ads now where it's like him pretending to like talk about this brand. And he's like, my daughter showed me this and I never said that. He goes, I'm not out here trying to talk about some supplement. He's like, the only shit I will talk about and endorse stuff that I actually use. He's like, I don't need the money. He's like, if I use it, I'll talk about it. But he's like, there is nothing on this show that's promoted that I don't use. No, but when it comes to comedy, though, the one thing that AI cannot do is replicate live. I mean, it can replicate replicate recordings of live performances, but it can't actually perform live. You know, there's no you don't have that. You don't have that. And yes, it can write books sort of, but it can't really replicate like new thoughts and it can't replicate an author reading where the author interacts with their audience. It can't replicate the feeling of live music. I feel like I'm not as pessimistic as you are uh, about, about it. Like, I feel like, you know, it, it kind of can serve as a supplement and a topic for discussion as opposed to like, I, I just, I just refuse to believe in all aspects of everything that it, that the world is coming to an end because it's not, I feel like AI George Carlin would say the same thing. <laughs> I don't feel like the world is coming to an end. I think that, like, I don't believe Skynet's coming. I mean, I, I think it's possible. Yeah. I don't think, I think we're going to have enough barriers in place. But I also think that AI is intrinsically bad for society. I think we're, it's going to wipe out a vast majority of our jobs. And you're going to have entire cultures of people rubbing their nickels together, being like, what do we do now? My job doesn't exist anymore. No. I just imagined a bunch of Terminators sitting in an auditorium laughing to an AI George Carlin uh, concert, but they probably wouldn't even like George Carlin. They'd probably, they'd probably go see like, you know, some like lame AI Tim Allen show or something. They seem more like uh, Bender from Futurama kind of guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, um, this is, I think this is something we'll be talking about again when, uh, when, when the next, when the AI Richard Pryor hits or something like that, God help us. Gross. Yeah. If you're listening to this go support your local comedians don't buy into this bullshit fair enough all right bobby thank you so much thank you all right thank you bobby hilliard for talking to me about the george carlin ai special this is not an ai generated podcast i am a real person i am neil pollock i am the editor-in-chief of book and film globe www.bookandfilmglobe.com also thanks to Scott Gold for talking to me about Echo, now airing on Disney+, Plus, a Marvel Cinematic Universe production, and to Rebecca Curson for talking about The Zone of Interest, a movie about the banality of evil and the horrors of the Holocaust. Really one of the best movies I've seen in a long time, and that is in theaters now and will be on streaming at some point. You really have to see it. It is worth your time. It's almost mandatory, I would say, and I rarely say that about a film. Thank you so much for joining us on this show and for reading Book and Film Globe. I will be back next week with more topics of interest, not artificially generated, and I will talk to you soon. 
Original Production.